The following podcast contains explicit language. I want to tell you my secret now. I see dead people. Charlotte Green is people! No, I am the father. What's in the box? You maniac! You blew it up! Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Slate Spoiler Specials. I'm Sam Adams, the senior editor at Slate and the editor of Slate's culture blog, Browbeat, and I am joined today by Marissa Martinelli, an assistant editor at Slate. Welcome, Marissa. Hi, Sam. Today, we are journeying into the unknown to spoil the highly anticipated Frozen 2, which, as you may gather from the title, is a sequel to the 2013 movie Frozen Nifty little movie, perhaps you heard of it. Uh, Marissa, what do you think of Frozen? Roman numeral two. They're trying to change the title and make it a like a regular two. But Listen, when something it. is as big a success as the first Frozen, you don't mess with the formula. Yes. You stick a two on it, and then you call it a day. So I had a strange relationship to the first Frozen movie. Tell us about it, please. Where it was the first... Disney princess movie to come out while I was an adult Mm -hmm. when I had officially kind of aged out of that type of movie and I was no longer in the Target demo because I think before that I was a teenager when Tangled came out but Tangled was so good Tangled is very good that it was still appealing my response to Frozen was if you'll pardon the pun chili and I felt very much my age when I was watching Frozen 2 we were in a theater with a lot of children who seemed to be enjoying themselves way more than I was. I mean, it was, Marissa and I were at the, the same screening um, here in New York, and it was it was pretty amazing. Like, it was a kind of a mixed screening of, like, press, and I think just some, you know, probably people who, you know, called a radio station at the right time, or certainly people who, like, brought their kids with them. The kids were all kind of, you know, sitting down toward the front of the theater, somewhere, like, up at the front of it, like, kind of touching the screen when there was, like, a graphic of Anna and Alsa up there, and you could just, like, all the Olaf parts especially, you could just, like, you could have done, like, a heat map of the of the laughter <laughs> in the audience. Like, it was just so obvious and precise, like, where it was coming from. Um, so, yeah, kids still like Olaf. Before I get to it, though, but what do you, so what do you think of Frozen 2? I thought it was a big mess. Yeah. That was intermittently kind of charming. Yeah, my my reaction to Frozen, I have um, a daughter now. I had a daughter when the first one came out, but she was a little too young, uh, at least for, for me to take to movies. There are people who take kids to movies younger than that, but she did not have the intention span to like sit through something for 100 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hadn't yet realized that all I had to do was like bring her food to eat in the middle of it. and then she <laughs> Is could, that the that, secret? It was for quite a while. I mean, it's still like difficult to... I mean, I, Try to raise like a law-abiding citizen, but she's very good at. She knows all about like sne- sneaking smart food into theaters where they don't let you bring food. Um, and if you're listening and you work in a movie theater, um, I don't actually do that. That's just for the podcast. I'm all making that up. Uh, so I saw the first one, and I thought, you know, huh, like okay, you know, there's the animated. I clearly, like got a very good song in it. You know, the one, but I was like, oh, that's not gonna, you know. This isn't going to be that big a deal. I would say more than one very good song. Yes. I think that what Frozen has going for it, the original Frozen, the two things are the it's deeply emotional and it touches on some pretty mature stuff in that respect. But also the music is awesome. There's not a lot of music, but Love is an Open Door slaps. (laughs) 
<laughs> we're going to go through all the songs in this version and categorize which which of them do and do not slap. Um, yeah, but but I mean, I, I definitely like it was not one of those things where I was sitting there and you know I mean and the theater like the reaction was was again like a screening with you know kids and stuff and and, and I think the reaction was kind of normal, but it was not like you know sometimes you're in the first screening of a movie and it's like you know seeing the Beatles in '64 and you're like this thing's going to be huge. Uh huh. This was not one of those. Um, clearly, it was. I and everyone in the theater me was wrong. Yeah, and I have since seen it um, with my daughter many times. Listen to the soundtrack in the car. Uh, I don't know, upwards of seven thousand times or sure. so. Um, and you know, it was I mean, looking forward to this. And uh, like you, I mean, it's just a mess. I mean, I try to you know, especially as a, as a you know, critic and someone who has to see a lot of sequels, whether I'm anticipating or not, like turn off the part of my brain that's like, okay, you know, where's the this from the first movie? Where's the that? Um, but it's very hard not to watch this one and be like, you know, both is just a person who kind of wants, you know, some of the same good stuff, but also someone who's trying to figure out like, okay, like what's, you know, what's the, what's going to be the Oscar nominated song from this? Like what's going to be the thing that, you know, you're hearing like, you know, kids sing along to in the car six months from now. Um, like, what's the let it go in this movie? And it just doesn't, you've certainly heard like a lot of attempts for let it goes. I don't think there's anything that is like kind of original as kind of like shockingly uh, emotional as that song is. Like it's sort of, I kind of think of it in the vein of like Mother Knows Best from Tangled, which you mentioned before, which is the song that it's, it's like, I feel like if kids in the audience like really like understood the emotional subtext in this song, it would kind of fuck them up a little bit. Like it's a song about like the cost of sort of emotional repression and, you know, your parents not letting you express yourself and, and, and how that kind of warps you for life. Um, but that <laughs> duality is part of what makes the best Disney movies great. Yeah. I mean, it's fucked up that Aladdin is living on the street and has to steal to feed himself. Yes. The fact that it's baked in, I don't know, it just makes the kids' movies last longer. You can watch them as you get older. Yes. And they don't necessarily age as badly as I suspect Frozen 2 might. Yeah. So, I mean, we'll talk about this a lot as we go on. But, I mean, my my takeaway from this really is it just... It's an okay Disney movie. It's sort of more um, competent and kind of streamlined and and efficient than the first one was, which is kind of a, a very like weird movie in some ways that I think once you've seen it 9,000 ways, it's easy to forget. Um, this one kind of like works better in a mechanical way. It also left like no impression on me whatsoever. It feels like kind of a, another story that they wrote and then they kind of put the Frozen characters into later or something. It just doesn't sync up with the first one not in terms of like it's not doing the same thing but it's just not not about the same stuff it's like they've kind of forgotten what the first movie is about and we're just like well, we have these characters and the princesses and it's cold like what what should they do to what extent do you think that's because frozen feels like it has never gone away it i don't feel coming into frozen 2 as though we're revisiting this kingdom i feel like it's just relentlessly been with us all this time they've done the longest shorts imaginable. They did Frozen Fever. They did Olaf's Frozen Adventure, which aired before Coco, and audiences actually complained because it is so interminable. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know what subway stop it got, but I mean, I literally walked by the marquee for Frozen on Broadway, like on my way to the screening for this movie. It's like right there. I think you that know. has something to do with it, where I didn't feel any kind of nostalgic familiarity revisiting these characters. I was like, oh my gosh, when will you go away? <laughs> 
<laughs> All right. Well, let's um, let us dive into the plot here. Why don't you um, describe, Marissa, where we uh, enter the story of Frozen 2? The movie opens by actually going back in time to long before the events of the first Frozen movie, where we get to know Elsa and Anna's parents a little better. So if you'll recall, in the first Frozen, they disappeared, presumably died, in a shipwreck, leaving the two girls orphaned and to take over the kingdom themselves. In this case, we see their father tells them a bedtime story about something that happened to him when he was a boy, where his father made a truce with a nearby native tribe called the North Aldra and gifted them with a dam to control the river. But something went horribly wrong in the meeting that they had in the forest. It's not clear at this point in the movie what that is. And there was a violent battle, and the forest, out of self-preservation, a mist descended over it, and no one could get in or out. But the king was rescued by a mysterious figure. We don't know what this person's deal is. Yeah, and this and this sequence also introduces what are almost the closest thing to like new characters in this movie. There aren't a lot of. There's no like. Poochie in Frozen 2. <laughs> we are introduced to the four elements of earth, air, water, and fire who are going to be sort of like a big element, um, both in terms of, of plot and backstory in this film. And they are the, they, so they cause this kind of impenetrable mist to descend on this village. And uh, after the father's done telling her the story, their mother, who's voiced by Evan Rachel Wood, um, comes in and sings him this bedtime song, um, this lullaby called All Is Found, which is about uh, a mysterious river that lies far off to the north. I think it's called Alta Holland, although I cannot find any reference to it on the internet. But uh, that it is basically the river of the world's memory. And this is a place where all the sort of, all the truths about everything that has ever happened in the world are sort of somehow stored in the, the waters of this river. And if you go there, um, you can learn all these things, but she also warns them, you know, if you dive in too deep, you can drown. So it's the idea that the the past is important, but also dangerous is sort of seated right at the beginning of this movie. And that's going to be kind of an important thing going forward. After this opening sequence, which is basically the, do you want to build a snowman of Frozen 2? I mean, you could really- That's so just, sad. Yes. But you could just kind of chart like bit by bit, like where they're like, okay, so we need an opening flashback. We need like a this, we need a that. Like it just, it's all the kind of little- bits are there. Um, so then we jump forward to, you know, the story's equivalent of the present day after the events of the first movie. All is going quite well in present day Arendelle. Um, Elsa's the queen. Anna and Kristoff and Olaf and Sven the reindeer are all kind of hanging around. We get a little song called Something's Never Change, which is just about kind of how everything is, you know, status quo and that's great. Um, but Elsa, as is her want, is hearing something a little different from what's going on. Why don't you tell us? Well, that is. first of all, Olaf has a very strange little journey in this movie Yes, where he's now permanently around regardless of season, mm-hmm. as was bestowed on him at the end of the first Frozen movie. And he's in this kind of moody adolescent phase where he's questioning things and he goes on these nihilistic tangents about the banality of life, <laughs> uh, which are quite strange, which is what prompts... Anna to be like, it's all fine. We'll always be here for each other, even though he's asking these incredibly complex questions. This is also one of the songs, there, and there are a couple of them, a couple of moments in this movie where Anna is singing what sounds kind of like a love song that you would assume would be addressed to Kristoff and then turns out to be addressed to Olaf. Um, and there's this weird kind of platonic, but not quite 
kind of love relationship between them that kind of makes you feel like maybe they like shuffled some lines around in the process of writing the songs because it just doesn't, it lands a little weird. Frankly, I know kids love Olaf, but you know, they don't, not that, not in that way. I definitely got that feeling too, including later in the movie, there's a pivotal scene where it seems like it should be for a romantic love interest. Poor Kristoff. <laughs> Let me just say the first movie he played a fairly significant plot role, but he didn't get to sing much. Jonathan Groff is an amazing singer, and it's such a waste to have him in your movie and then give him a little ditty about reindeer and nothing else. So in this movie, they kind of flipped it, where they did not know what to do with his character, but they did give him an entire song. And I think he suffered more than anyone for the amount of Olaf in this movie. Yeah, I mean, his whole role in this movie basically is to not propose to Anna. He is, from the beginning of the movie, like, kind of fumbling around with this ring in his pocket, and that's basically all he does for, like, 98% of the movie. I think it's going to be a huge spoiler to reveal at this point that he does, in fact, actually propose to her at the end, but he basically just spends the entire movie kind of, like, tripping over his own feet and not really accomplishing much of anything. I hated this subplot. I hated everything about it. It's... First of all, incredibly weird that he spends the whole movie trying to propose. Presumably, they've been together for years at this point. And it's very like, now you want to propose? Now that other catastrophic events that we will get to are in motion? But also, it's just, I mean, I, there were so many little kids in our audience, and I found the dynamic between Kristoff and Anna to be deeply problematic. <laughs> A lot of their scenes together are... Kristoff saying something innocuous and Anna being like, what do you mean by that? And being easily offended. And I was sitting there like, oh, gosh, all these kids are going to grow up to think that women are willfully misunderstanding men. It's a very old fashioned comedy routine dynamic. Well, and also I think you got kind of get the sense that she's like expecting him to propose, but also not sure if she's right. And like and so kind of wanting him to, but also worried that she's like misreading him. And so just kind of constantly on edge and kind of like, you know, hands in the air flailing around like some like 30 screwball heroine. That's accurate. And it just for me, as someone who loves Disney movies and thinks that they've actually had some really wonderful romances, it felt so tertiary to the main plot that I kind of wonder why they bothered with it at all. Yes. We'll probably be asking that question a lot. It's a flabby movie. There's a lot of this stuff. Yes. Threads that when you pull at them, they don't really go anywhere. Okay. So while, you know, everyone else is just kind of settling into their life in Arendelle and thinking the things are kind of just fine, um, Elsa is hearing the call of the wild, uh, quite literally. It's mm. into the unknown, the presumably the let it go of this movie. Although I don't think it will catch on in quite the same way. Yeah. For one thing, it's a duet, technically. Elsa is singing in response to a voice who's sung by the uh, musician Aurora. And it almost sounds like whale song. But because it's a call and response, I can't imagine it becoming a let it go where you can just sort of belt it. Because you do need the odd whale song beckoning to make it work uh it's a good song i mean credit where credit is due in a movie full of very forgettable songs with perhaps two exceptions uh it, it's strong and it worked for me yes and i think the fact that like after kind of all is found which is the the intro river song by their mom the fact that the first two songs in this movie are called something's never change and into the unknown uh, i was very much like the dynamic we're dealing with 
here. It's like everything is still the same, all the stuff that you love this year, but it's a little bit different. I mean, that's the point is like Elsa's in a different place than the rest of them are. Yeah. But it is very literal Yeah, in that sense. It's also, it's generic in the same way that Let It Go is generic, where you can listen to it outside of the context of the plot. Right. And this is the case where I actually, and this is a, a sentence that I'm shocked to hear myself utter, but yet it is the true. I kind of like the uh, end credits version of Into the Unknown by Panic at the Disco better. <laughs> I mean, it's... Sam! I, I'm like I'm, as I mentioned, I have a ten year old. I am I'm forced to listen to Panic in the Disco in the in the car a lot. Um, I do not generally enjoy them, but this is a completely like cheeseball like over the top song, and their version of it is totally like cheeseball over the top. It's got like electric guitar. It's got like a swing and horn section and stuff, and I just feel like that's kind of what this song wants. It is a weird cover. <laughs> They're a weird choice for it, and the. Rock cover does not make sense to me, but I'm glad it found its audience in you. <laughs> Boy, uh, I feel I feel seen, um, and it's I'm not sure that I like it. Um, Elsa is just feeling the the pull to just kind of leave. She's seeing these kind of lights in the distance, like the Northern Lights, which we're you know kind of also getting the sense are connected with these four elements that we've uh, seen in the beginning. There is literal uh, unrest in the kingdom. You know, the streets kind of start um, acting like they're waves underneath and the cobblestones are kind of flying all over the place. All the people kind of run out into the town on a nearby cliff and they um, come to the conclusion. This basically goes back to the, the father's story from the beginning that this has to do with um, Arendelle's relationship to the North Aldera and this mysterious, you know, kind of fog that has settled in up there. And they need to go back up the mountain and, and figure out what is going on. The core characters split off from the rest of the kingdom conveniently. And venture into the this wall of fog that is so annihilation and head into the forest where all of the people involved in the encounter from decades earlier are still there. They've just been sort of biding their time for all those years. I mean, it kind of makes you wonder, like, I mean, if these people were actually trapped in a fog like that for 30 years, like some serious the kind of ad astra shit would have gone down like they would have <laughs> they would have gone insane and started like eating each other and stuff they wouldn't have just been like sitting around and going kind of pleasantly gray and just being like oh what's weird is here. they've been in a kind of cold war all this time it seems like they haven't resolved the conflict in any way because as soon as they see each other they draw weapons but they also haven't killed each other I mean, it's a Disney movie. There's yeah, some hand waving there I mean there is and I think we'll circle back to this too as much as this movie will end up being about Anna and Elsa kind of finding things out about themselves and about the history of their kingdom. There is like a tremendous kind of narcissism about it in the way that it's like, well, if something happened when they weren't around, like it doesn't really matter until it happens in front of them or they find out <laughs> about it. You know, so that these people have just been kind of sitting around for 30 years, like not doing anything because Elsa and Anna were not there to watch it happen. We get our first real encounter with one of the elements in the forest, which is the wind spirit which is named Gale, and it's very Pocahontas, Colors of the Wind. It's literally just a puff of wind. I think that going into this, I've been primed by like Avatar The Last Airbender to expect some kind of consistency among different elements. But in this movie, it's kind of all over the place. So there's a water horse, there's a puff of wind, there's a salamander that controls fire, which is thematically sort of makes sense because it's a salamander and then there are these massive walking mountain things to represent earth it was kind of scattered to me i 
was sort of hoping we'd go into the forest and see a tribe of people who could control fire. But I guess they were worried about Nickelodeon's copyright. Yeah, and, and it's... Um and it just feels like another example in this movie where kind of the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. Like there's there is no there's no kind of like consistency or rules or just even like coherence to it. Like there are earth giants, but then the water is just like this one. It's called the knock, I believe, mm. um, which takes the form of a horse because this is a movie about princesses. And then the salamander is just the chameleon from Tangled. <laughs> But like, on fire. With, on fire. Purple with the fire. same behaviors. In much the same way that the reindeer in this movie is the horse from Tangled. <laughs> I know I mean, she, we, the, she ends up going to... We've Altai. arrived at our first reveal. Okay. Which happens surprisingly early in the movie and sort of tips you off that there are even more wild reveals to come. Which is the girls discover something important about their mother. Which is that she was a member of the North Aldra tribe who during the battle, rescued their father, stowed away on a cart and got out in time before the mist prevented anyone from coming or going, and then presumably just hid among the Arendellians until she and the prince-to-be king got married, because we see her also at one point saying, I have to tell you something about my past to her husband or soon-to-be husband, so I guess he didn't know. He just thought she was hanging out up there. Just, but not. just like a child chilling in the middle of town. No one knows where she came from. Normal yeah. stuff. Yeah, and we, sh- and we should mention, I mean, that the, the North Aldra are, um, I mean, very much uh, sort of generic kind of indigenous people in this. But they do have, they kind of have long braided hair and they wear animal skins and they have kind of almond shaped eyes. I mean, the reference points are not difficult to spot. Well, with the first Frozen movie, there was controversy about how white all of the characters were and part of the controversy stemmed from people thought that the filmmakers were erasing the Sami people who are uh, an indigenous group in Scandinavia and, and they it, had something to do with the kind of like the chant you hear at the beginning of Frozen 2 right Right, and I mean Frozen comma T-O-O not Frozen 2 but yes, <laughs> correct yes, yes. Um, and so in this movie I, they did actually consult with experts to try to make it's not a direct correlation between them, but to be more cognizant. And the movie is much more diverse as a result, including this strange sort of retconning that Arendelle is now a multiracial city, which was not the case in the first one. Right. I don't know how See, much like I Sterling buy Brown that. kind of being a soldier, an Arendellian soldier who's been stuck in the fog for thirty years, and that revisionism is strange to me because. Frozen ends with them opening the gates to the palace and all this openness and the winter has ended. And it would have been fine if they just made the second movie more diverse. But then they made a point of being like, nope, Sterling K. Brown was actually stuck in the woods for 30 they years. Here. They were all here the whole time. We just like forgot they to show them. They were just off camera the <laughs> yeah. whole time. Yeah. Uh, I found that a little bit strange, but. Well, and I mean, and the strangest thing is that you're basically now you're being told that the main characters of the first movie especially um with Elsa seemed like these kind of just like ultra kind of Nordic like quasi sort of Aryan princesses were like half native all yes, along. That is a strange twist. And, and, this movie and I mean I, Disney has been, you know, quite, you know, commendably and deliberately making its, you know, especially its its princesses, but the you know the protagonists of its movies uh more diverse. Um I'm not sure this is the way to follow in that tradition. I agree with that. 
It's a strange development for sure, but it is just the first of several twists to come. Um, so after they leave this this village, um, Elsa in particular feels that they're not done learning the truth about both their parents and their kingdom. Um, and it's at this point, kind of as they're walking along, that they come across the wreckage of their parents' boat, which we saw kind of shipwrecked in the prologue of the first movie. It's deserted. But um, Anna remembers that Arendellian ships have a secret watertight compartment where they keep uh, exposition dumps. Um, so <laughs> go in there and find the map. And it turns out that their parents were trying to find this uh, mythical river of Alta Holland. Uh, and so then Elsa decides that she needs to go there alone. And where she is venturing, uh, they cannot go. And this is a quest she must undertake herself, yada, yada, yada. So she basically decides she needs to kind of ice it up and cross the big ocean to the north and find this river. I love that Elsa learned nothing from the first movie about not bearing burdens alone and putting her sister in emotional distress while she does so. She's just like, you know what? That's that's my thing. So, <laughs> I mean, it does really feel, I mean, this, this movie we should mention is kind of, you know, written and directed by like the whole crew from the first movie. Um, Jennifer Lee and, and Chris Buck are back as directors. Uh, Richard Lopez and Kristen Anderson Lopez are back um, you know, writing the, the music and the lyrics. Um, and yet it kind of feels like this movie was made by people who aren't that familiar with Frozen. I felt in some ways it was sort of the same emotional beats and they were less resonant for having been done in the first one. Mm. Anna in this movie spends a lot of the time freaking out because there's not a lot for her to do up until the very end. She's a tag along on Elsa's journey. And then when Elsa abandons her, that's when she's finally forced to suck it up and do things for herself. So meanwhile, I mean, having, you know, gotten everybody together in this happy reunion at the end of the first movie, we now, of course, come to the point in the sequel where everybody has to split up um, and then undergo their separate quests. So this is the, the point where all the characters whose songs don't really fit into the plot um, get their own songs anyway. Um, so this is where we get a Olaf's uh, little ditty called When I Am Older, um, which we probably don't need to say a whole lot about. Unless... I will say, listen, for all the hate that Olaf gets, Josh Gad gives it his all, and he's really trying. <laughs> and I did not hate Olaf in this movie, which is quite an accomplishment. I thought there's a scene where he acts out the plot of the first Frozen movie, and it was one of the few that I heard kids laughing, but I also heard parents laughing. And I was laughing. There's a great moment where he gets to the kind of villain reveal in the first movie. And then there's just a cutaway to, I think it's Sterling Brown's character, but somebody going, what? (laughs) And it just like reminds you of like how everybody's like, what the fuck? Like in the first movie, because it still makes no sense. And I was like, I'll watch it again and I'll see like the, how they foreshadow. And it's like, there's no, there's no foreshadowing whatsoever. (laughs) They just like, they wrote a movie where Elsa was the villain. They realized Elsa couldn't be the villain. And then they're like, okay, let's find another character. What about this guy? So. That, that's accurate. That's pretty much what happens. Yes. So anyway, so th- when I'm older, which is the in summer of this movie, it's a little sh- soft shoe number about uh, growing older and trying to make sense of the world. Like that's a sort of they're trying very hard to give a snowman an emotional arc in it, this movie. It doesn't work the way in summer worked because the arc it's so random. Yeah. That he's in this phase of adolescence. Yeah. And the song is about how he'll understand when he's older why all of these bizarre things are happening to him with fire and wind and and the joke and the irony as with in summer is that he's wrong and he doesn't understand the world but 
And neither do the adults. And neither do the adults. And that's not really, those are not things that make sense when you're older. It just was a clear attempt to recreate in summer yes. and to give him a song. And it's charming. It's a nice little soft shoe. It doesn't it make any sense or contribute anything. It's completely disposable um, and it's fine. Speaking of completely disposable, oh, what are, is Kristoff doing? Are we going to cross swords on this one? All right. Let's, let's, what is Kristoff doing? When you answer your own question. Kristoff is still trying to figure out how to propose because that is the only function that he serves in this entire movie. And he gets this bizarro like 80s metal ballad called Lost in the Woods where he is quite literally lost in the woods but he's also lost in the woods of love because he can't connect with Anna who is behaving irrationally and he is totally inept at proposing. I mean it doesn't fit in the movie. It's completely extraneous. It is based on kind of recapitulating the visual syntax of these like, you know, 80s power ballads slash like cheesy karaoke graphics. And yet I think it is probably the best thing in the movie. Uh, you may not agree with this. And, I mean, I, I think I decided the precise antecedent for the song um, is Chicago's Will You Still Love Me, um, which is sort of kind of metal inflected, but more of a kind of like synth synthy thing. Sure. It's soft. I mean, there are visual references in this to like there's a there's a straight up uh, Bohemian Rhapsody bit where like multiple Svens in his fantasy are now like singing backup for him, um, and it's just I mean it goes completely off the rails. I cannot imagine what like a seven year old is going to make of this sequence. It's clearly for the parents, and this is probably why I really didn't enjoy it because I was not the target audience for it. But I have to say, it did a little bit ring of the. Haha, so random kind of humor that I think plagues these movies because they're so bloated. Mm -hmm. Why was it in this movie? Don't get me wrong. I'm thrilled we got more Jonathan Groff singing. But I just... I think that's the only... It's like we need something for Kristoff to do. We didn't give Groff a song last time. Um, let's give him that. And I think he's another 26 seconds of uh, the reindeer song. From the first movie. But yeah, that's the only thing that it's doing in here. Of all the reprises to go for, that they went for Reindeer Are Better Than People is extremely funny. <laughs> it is. Um, one of my gripes with the first movie and why it feels so weird to me is it's like a musical that then completely does away with songs for like its entire climax. Because um, they're sort of, they're okay with kind of I want songs, you know, sort of like single ballads or duets, but they can't sort of do like a plot climax song where something's actually like resolved in song they can have characters kind of plant their feet and express how they're feeling either to the sky or to each other but they cannot sort of move things forward in in song so once the plot really kicks into action the songs just go away and i find that to be strange and unsatisfying not to make this whole podcast about love is an open door <laughs> please tune into my other podcast marissa talks about love is an open door for three hours <laughs> One of the things I loved about the first movie is that they had some traditional songs like the I Want song and the and Let It Go as sort of the big ballad. But they also packaged a villain song into a love duet. Right. I just felt like the songs were so much more clever. Yes. Yeah. Than in this movie where they are comparatively straightforward and a bunch of them just have nothing to do with the story. No. And you really hear and this may be I mean, I haven't heard other things that the Lopez's have written together. So it may just be them. Um, and that this just, these just happen to be the two entities that I've studied closely, but just listening to the soundtrack, you can hear so many 
like musical ticks from the first soundtrack repeating themselves and it's i mean okay they also had to write an entire second act full of songs for the broadway musical because there were no songs there Mm. um and but it's just like kind of is this all you've got like are you repeating yourself like this early um so it just it just felt very you know familiar which i guess it's supposed to but but like repetitive and that's one of the reasons why lost in the woods is kind of it's total pastiche but at least it's pastiching something that they didn't pastiche before it's risky in a movie that's very safe yeah it's one of the riskier songs yes so elsa is en route to the frozen north and this is where um horse girls get their moment to shine but tell us about the the appearance of the knock elsa has to cross a sea i guess for lack of a better term there are huge waves crashing she, of course, has ice powers, as people will recall from the first movie, that are, like, kind of more than ice powers. In this movie, they're very much ice powers, but in the I remember in the first movie, she, like, made a pair of skates. She made her dress. Like, it's not just ice. She has powers beyond that. Anyway, in this case, she's freezing water, very literally, to try to cross the river, and she's unsuccessful, and she tangles with the knock which is literally a horse made out of water. And I also had the thought of this is a beautiful gift to horse girls everywhere. <laughs> it's very sweet. But what about a wind horse and a fire horse and an earth horse? Yeah, the four horsemen of the horse thing. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so anyway, so she's heading north, trying to kind of ice man her way across these waves, doing these little ice slides, um, keeps falling into the water. This horse kind of emerges underwater. And at first, seems like it's kind of trying to drown her. But uh, she does what you do with a uh, you know mystical water horse spirit, which is she uh, somehow whips up like a bridle and reins and tames it and uh, rides it north to Alta Holland, which is where we get um, almost our last significant song. Um, this movie, which is uh, "Show Yourself." Yes, I, we should also just say that, in fairness to this movie, it's beautiful. Yes, and the scene of Elsa riding across the water on. A water horse is beautiful. Yeah, I mean, the Disney animators kind of, like, knocked themselves out, and they get to do some stuff with, like, water. And I mentioned the kind of Northern Lights effect before. Once they get to, you know, Alta Holland, the river is actually a glacier, because a glacier, as someone makes sure to say out loud, is a river <laughs> of ice. Um, so she she goes into this big kind of, like, icy crystal cavern that's, like, full of memories, and that's, like, super beautiful, too. Right. I just, in fairness to the movie, because the plot is ridiculous and flabby and... There are so many strange, random tangents. I mean, visually, it's just it's stunning. And that's basically why you would go to see Frozen 2 as an adult, is and for I thought, the spectacle. I mean, the first one felt a little, like, I, I think, you know, this kind of, you know, 3D, like, digital animation. Um, 3D, not in the sense that you wear glasses for it, but that it's not flat. Computer animation, Yeah, I mean, sure. it's really, like made a lot of strides in the last six years and the first one looks a little kind of crude and flat and plastic and this one the skin textures don't sort of look weird and gross anymore (laughs) and um, And twice in this movie we get scenes where elsa suspends ice crystals for lack of a better term just extending outward and the visuals there are just they're so crisp and the reflection off of the ice. I mean, maybe at this point we should just be used to it, that Disney knows what it's doing with special effects, but they just, they nailed it. Yeah. Uh, so she gets to Alta Holland. Um, what happened there? Here's where I did not fully understand. Was her mom actually calling her? 
or was that just a form that the spirits took? I mean, I think it's the latter, unless they're doing some weird kind of like dark phoenix thing. Where her mom, uh, I, th- I think the yeah, the idea. I mean, it's all sort of, or maybe her mom has died and sort of become like part of you know the universal mind or, or something. Uh, Show yourself, which is the song that she sings. This is not musically, but visually, very much like the Let It Go sequence in this movie, and to the extent that she's like in a kind of round, you know, ice ice, icy structure. She like gives herself like a wardrobe makeover in the middle of the song. Um, it, very nice. Nice, the nice exact dress. moment that that happened, I mentally calculated how much money Disney would make from all the costumes that parents would have to buy after this movie. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you, you know, you need to give them a new costume because you get, they have to buy the two outfits for the Elsa doll. It's very important thematically and, um, you know, story-wise and for no other reason. Um, but yeah, so it is Evan Rachel Wood's voice in this song with her instead of uh, Aurora. But I mean, but it is the same kind of musical motif of that uh, kind of four-note uh, echoey call in the distance that we heard at the beginning of the movie. And in the Ice Palace, Elsa sees, because it's basically a palace of memory, because water has memory, as we're told many times throughout this movie. Many times. Uh, she sees in ice a lot of reenactments of the first Frozen, and she sort of shoves off Hans, which is very fun. I like the callbacks to the first Frozen as much as I wish Frozen had gone away in the meantime. Mm -hmm. And then she sees what actually happened in the forest all those years ago between the Northaldra and the Arendellians, which, of course, is that their grandfather betrayed the Northaldra, that the dam he gave them was not, in fact, a gift and was meant to weaken their lands. And when... One of the tribal leaders basically said that to him. He attacked him in cold blood. So this has become a story about colonialism very quickly. Yes. I mean, this to me is kind of the central problem of this movie. Like, this is an interesting idea. I would go, like, too much farther than that. But there's, like, okay, this is, like, some, some like, pretty, like, heavy stuff for a Disney movie to get into. It, like, has nothing to do with what the first Frozen movie is about. It has almost nothing to do with what this movie is about in the sense of this, you know, grandfather who they're now learning was kind of like a snake and a, you know, colonialist and a betrayer is someone that we know nothing about that the movie's protagonists seem to have no emotional relationship with. It's not like, oh no, our grandfather who we cherished and we always believed was such a just and righteous man actually betrayed the native people. It, it doesn't mean anything to He's them. That that's the, the anti-Hans yeah. in that, we had no reason to believe he was good. Yeah. It's not much of a revelation that he was evil because he kind of just seemed like a bad Disney character when he's first introduced. <laughs> yes. Like, of course, that guy with the beard betrayed them. Yeah. Of I mean, course. And there's a moment like, right. I mean, I think even when their dad tells the story, there's this moment where the grandfather and the North Eldred chief kind of like go up and talk to each other and the camera kind of, you know, holds back or whatever. We don't hear what they're saying. And it's like, oh, we're going to find out what that is in the third act. And it's going to like shake things up. Um, and of course, it, it does that. Well, Elsa's finding out the truth. Um, Anna and Olaf are just kind of like wandering around in the forest or something. It's I don't, not even clear to me exactly what they're doing, but somehow they kind of get lost and end up discovering where the earth giants who have kind of turned up a couple times and, and people have kind of hidden from them, but they're these, you know, massive, you know, hundreds of feet tall um, giants made out of rock, basically. And so they... She and Olaf just kind of 
go down a river and find where the earth giants are sleeping, um, kind of narrowly escape them, uh, but but have located them at this point. And so they're moping, really. Yes. Anna's moping because Elsa left her and she's faced with the possibility that there are something she can't control. Yes. Elsa freezes in the ice palace. Literally the moment that she froze, all I could think was, oh, Frozen. <laughs> That's the name of the movie. <laughs> I... Whispers to date, That's Frozen. Yeah. <laughs> That's Frozen too. Yeah. And she communicates this to Anna, who is far away. And Anna is wrecked and devastated. And because Olaf is one of Elsa's creations, Olaf disintegrates. So Anna is truly alone and has to find her own strength, which is nice. I wish there had been higher stakes for this because as soon as Olaf disintegrates, you're like, you know that little snowman's going to come back. We're not rid of him. No. I Tearful death scene aside... Olaf will always be with us. Yeah. There's no way that they're going to like send all the, all the kids out of the theater like weeping because Olaf's dead. Olaf's dead. All the parents cheering. This was a great day. Uh, no, it did not happen. That's part of the problem I had with the ending because Anna, having learned that her grandfather betrayed the North Aldra, decides that she needs to destroy the dam to make reparations, essentially. And that that will be the big conflict ending act. And in destroying the dam, it will flood Arendelle. I don't understand how they built this dam while Arendelle was standing. And now it's going to flood it. I guess I don't know how dams work. But no, I mean, I, yeah, I don't really understand how they built dams, before, like big dams before kind of construction equipment either. So, So she concocts this plan where she's going to lead the Earth Giants to the dam so that they can throw rocks and destroy it. It's a really daring idea to put in this movie about snowmen and there's a rock video in it and other <laughs> other things that they've packed in here. It's trying to be progressive in a way that I appreciated. I don't know that it fully thought things through. Because Anna basically just says, fuck her people. <laughs> they will have no home in an effort to restore peace. It's not really well thought out. No. Elsa, of course, has not died. She's fine. Whew. And ultimately swoops in and saves the day. So they get to destroy the dam and their kingdom is safe. Yes, Anna. And then, but then you know, Elsa gets to come and like use her ice powers to kind of ward off the tidal wave that is about to wipe out the entire kingdom. And then it just subsides and is fine. All well, the water just goes somewhere else at some point because I guess it remembers. Um, water then, has memory, then, Sam. I don't know if you've heard. And then Olaf comes back because Anna has her powers back and shows she can kind of reconstitute him because water has memory. Um, he remembers, you know, who he is and that he loves everybody. And Kristoff uh, finally proposes. Hooray! No one cares. There were no stakes <laughs> to this movie in the end. Yeah. Nothing that happened was permanent. De children, death is not permanent. That is the lesson of this movie. Yes. Your choices do not have catastrophic consequences because magic. Yeah, I mean, the biggest consequence, well, that these people that we didn't know about in the first movie are maybe better off than Earth Ultra, and then Elsa goes to live with them. Like, that's sort of the ultimate, really kind of the only consequential thing that happens in the, in the movie to the characters is Elsa decides that um, she's kind of 
better off up there, although it isn't really like coming to terms with her like native heritage so much. It's just like the kingdom is kind of you know, a little stuffy and boring for her or something. Well, it's not just that she's half North Aldra. She's like the fifth element, yes. we learn. There are these four <laughs> elements, and she is the connection to the spirit world. That's a pretty big leap to make in the final moments of the movie, where she goes and just leaves the kingdom and is like, all right, I'm a magic spirit. Anna, you got this. It's also inaccurate, because as I have learned from the movies, the fifth element is love. <laughs> Interestingly, Elsa still has no love interest. Speaking of love, there was some <laughs> speculation that she might be gay in this movie because there was another woman on screen with her at some point, and people are desperate. <laughs> but it did not happen. Some, often, that, that other woman is her sister, and they do not be all do not let that stand in their way. Um, for which I, you know, admire them. Never give up on your dreams. All right, that's a corner of the fanfic. Net that we don't need to get into right now. <laughs> not, not, no, not in this podcast. Um, but yeah, so all uh, all is well in Arendelle, I guess. Everybody's living together in happy harmony. Um, the you sister- might say all is found because that's the song that plays you, over you, the end credits. You might <laughs> indeed. Um, and speaking of end credits, we get not one but three covers of uh, songs from the movie because this is an animated movie and they're all, the credits are long. So we get the aforementioned wonderful, amazing Panic at the Disco cover of Into the Unknown. Uh, we get Casey Musgraves doing All This Found, um, which is the Evan Rachel Wood song that opens the movie. And we get Weezer. Of uh, course we do, get Weezer. Doing Lost in the Woods, which is really redundant because it's like the song's already a tongue-in-cheek parody. So it's just Weezer is, that is very much kind of the hat on the hat of... Uh, like musical end credits. I wish we'd gotten choices. more actual songs in the movie as opposed to three covers at the end. I mean, it's really weird. Like the first movie had, I think, nine songs. Um, this one basically has seven. Um, there's also like a little reprise of, of the reindeer song from the, but I mean, they're basically the seven in a, you know, hundred minute movie is like pretty light on Songs. I mean, I guess they know they're not going to have to adapt this one into a Broadway musical because there's already there already is one. But it's just weird to have like so little music in an ostensible musical. There is the next right thing, which we didn't get to, which Anna takes from her father's advice about how when you don't know what to do, all you can do is take the next step, which is I think a good message for kids to take away. I don't know that kids are going to be singing this song. But the idea that when you're overwhelmed, you should just take it a little bit at the time is part of this genre of, I don't know, anti-anxiety music that a lot of kids' properties are coming out with. I'm thinking of Steven Universe, which has several songs that are very clearly about anxiety and how to deal with it. Right. And this also, I mean, it's because Kristen Bell's, you know, playing this part. I mean, it's very, that seems like a very kind of Eleanor Shellstrop on The Good Place uh, sentiment. You know, just do just do one one right thing next and then, you know, do another one after that. But don't don't cheat it up. Don't just get caught in trying to derive first principles. Um, would you take your imaginary children to this? Um, <laughs> what do you think? Would I take my army of fire salamanders to see this movie? Uh, yeah, I guess so. It, it was a fine way to spend a couple of hours. But that's not a great endorsement for the movie itself. 
I know for a fact that I'm going to be seeing this movie again this weekend because, you know, promises have been made. Um, and I'm, I'm fine with that. You know, I've listened to the soundtrack, um, I don't know, probably like a dozen times just kind of getting ready for this because it's not a very like sticky movie. And I kind of had to remind myself of some of the things that happen. And it's, you know, the seventh or eighth time some of those songs really start to become a little bit catchy. That's uh, the real litmus test is leaving the theater. Not even are you humming the songs, but can you hum the songs? And I think with the exception of Into the Unknown, I was not able to hum any of the songs. Right. I was reading through some of the reviews today, and a lot of people have compared it to uh, the kind of straight-to-video sequels that Disney used to make, like The Lion King 2. Um, Just obviously a much more kind of expensive, like high production value of that. But it it feels, story-wise, like very much like that. Like just there's no like burning desire to make this. There's no like incredible, you know... uh, you know, twist or kind of, you know, clever reinvention of the first movie. It's just like the first one made a shitload of money. We need to make another one. What do you got? And they will make a shitload of money. (laughs) On that note, thank you for listening to this Slate Spoiler Special. Um, Please subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special podcast feed. And if you like the show, please rate and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have suggestions for movies or TV shows we should spoil, or if you have any other feedback you'd like to share, please send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our audio engineer is Merritt Jacob. Our producer is Rosemary Belson. For Marissa Martinelli, I'm Sam Adams, and thank you for listening.